You're listening to episode 178 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, I'm joined once again by our professor of church history, Dr. Alan Strange. How are you doing today, professor? Great as always, Jared. Dr. Strange continues his series on ancient church history by examining Augustine's work, The City of God. Dr. Strange, what about this great work, The City of God? What can you tell us about it? Well, Augustine has so many great works, and he began, let me just say this before I get right onto that, he began a number of these major works, uh, particularly in the period, say, 398 to 400. So he's converted about a dozen years earlier, and he's writing things all along. He writes the Confessions, though, during this period, and he begins uh, working on his great work on the Trinity, his work on Christian doctrine, his work against Faustus, who was a Manichaean, one of these fellows who was a dualist, um, his work on the literal interpretation of Genesis. Very important works. But without question, you've put your finger, Jared, as one would not be surprised because you're a student of history. Uh, You've put your finger on one of his great contributions, which is the city of God. And he wrote that work over a period of almost 15 years. He begins it around 412 and uh, completes it in 426. And uh, what's it all about? Well, it's very, it's, it's basically Augustine's view of, and it's the first, you might say, developed setting forth of a view of history through a Christian lens. He's understanding history uh, the history of the world since creation in some measure from a Christian perspective. And what had happened, just to step back a little bit, in 410, uh, the Huns had sacked Rome. And just to say, to go back from that, many people had come to associate whatever happened with Rome, the Roman Empire, with whatever success or failure the church had. This, you really would go back to, and we've talked about this before, but you'd go back particularly to Constantine, who was converted in 312 and issued the uh, Edict of Milan in 313, making the church legal. And of course, uh, some decades later, Theodosius I not only said the church is legal, but everything else is illegal. You have to be a Christian. And Eusebius, the father of church history, he's often called, was, you could say he was sort of the court chronicler of Constantine. And he very much saw the conversion of Constantine as a huge win for the Christian church. And he saw it in this way. Before Constantine's conversion and before Eusebius is writing about it in the previous couple of centuries, um, there were a lot of people who were who were Kiliasts. We've talked a little bit about this before, but a Kiliast is essentially a historic premillennialist, somebody who believed that things are really bad in the world and Jesus is going to come back and set up the millennial kingdom. That was the view of many. With the conversion, however, of 
Constantine and Eusebius is almost being his uh, his promo guy, you could say. There's a shift that's really quite, the note you find in, in Eusebius, I think it's fair to say, is really quite triumphalistic. So the church goes from this, we're persecuted, we're suffering, we're under the sword, to we've triumphed. Rome has capitulated, and we're in charge now. And the Christians uh, were being run over, and now we're running the show. And um, as a part of that, what we should expect is the the church, the universal church, but particularly as it sees itself under the bishop of Rome. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But this notion that the bishop of Rome and those in communion with him in this universal church is just going to go forward together with the Roman Empire, sort of almost melding them. So there's not that distinction. Obviously, before uh, the persecutions ended, when there were persecutions, about 10 waves of them, there wasn't this kind of a of a, a combination, you might say, or a union of church and state. There couldn't be. I mean, the Christian faith was illegal and was persecuted by the Roman Empire. But now that Rome not only has a Christian emperor as such, but requires everybody to be Christian, there's there comes to be in many of these quarters and most of them a, a, a virtual identification between the church and the Roman Empire. So the charge that goes out then to move back into Augustine's time, the charge that goes out is, what is going on in the Roman Empire? I mean, all through the fourth century, there were problems. Uh, there, there had been problems a long time. The empire is crumbling. It takes some some scores of years to do so. I mean, just to put the the point on it, 476 is given as the date. 476 AD is given as the date of the end of the empire in the West. So. Augustine is looking at 410 and this sacking of Rome by the Huns, and so many people are saying, this is absurd. The Christian church isn't doing what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to, together with the state, bring us this great victory in what's happening. And Augustine writes this city of God, and in the city of God, he basically makes it really clear that the city of God and the city of man, or the city of this world, uh, as he calls them, are not some empirical entities. They're not comparable to cities in any ordinary sense of that word. They're not identifiable by geographical boundaries. They're cities in a mystical sense. That's the word he uses. And he says citizenship in one or the other is determined not by who you are, what your birth is, what your status is, your parents or where you live, but by the object of your love. Uh, and he says, in one case, in the city of man, in the city of this world, the love of God uh, is, uh, excuse me, the, the love of oneself to the contempt of God is what's expressed. And he says, in the case of the city of God, the love of God to the contempt of oneself is what's expressed. And so he sets forth these two, you might say, alternate cities, and your members one of another. Now, let me just say to some of our listeners and we'll say more about this at the proper time of history. But this is not a two-kingdom understanding of things. My point is not to say that a two-kingdom approach, as many of you may be familiar with it, can't in some way be syncretized with this or harmonized with this. But that's not what he's setting forth. 
because the city of man is all of those who are basically the reprobate, and the city of God is all those who are the elect. And so you could say they're more like, in terms of kingdoms, they're more like the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, not two kingdoms as you find them in Luther, Calvin, and others. So I, I want to be clear on this point here. I think it might be helpful for our listeners to know that. But basically what he does in the first 10 books of the city of God is he goes through and he shows that Rome itself was always a cesspool, that the, that, that the Roman Empire wasn't what a lot of its, um, its champions and propagandists said that it ever was, that it had its problems, serious, serious problems, and it's being judged. But the question is, well, wait a minute, if it's being judged, I thought it was all Christian. And he said, no, it's, it's a mixture. There are Christians in it. There are pagans in it. Uh, only the city of God is Christians, and and that finds that does find a kind of 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 evidence or representation in the church. You do find that in the church, but he says, you know, this uh, this notion that uh, that that Rome and the church together are this great thing is just false. He really puts the lie to that, and he deals with a number of things. You can think of the vision of Daniel too. And he says, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. It's the church, to use the words of the great hymn, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, is whether to the end. It's the people of God that shall prevail. It's not any particular kingdom. And so what he does in that great work is he he makes a very clear distinction that even though many people now in the Roman Empire claim to be Christians or take the name of Christians because it's the law, there are many who are not, and we cannot identify the kingdom of God with simply any earthly kingdom. Earthly kingdoms come and go, and we must identify the kingdom of God only on its own terms. And so City of God really becomes a premier work of a Christian interpretation of history and how we should look at history. And it's a great antidote to the triumphalism of Eusebius. And it really sets the plate uh, for a kind, I think these terms are anachronistic, but our our readers will appreciate that. It sets the basis for a kind of of, of amillennialism that we're all familiar with. So if, if you had historic premillennialism in Kiliism in the earlier church, people were looking for Jesus to come back, and you can understand that when they were under such persecution. And then you had a kind of triumphalistic, you could call it postmillennialism with Eusebius. What we have with Augustine is something that's more sane and sober and balanced sort of for the ages, this kind of recognition that these these two go forward on on separate tracks uh, and we could call it a kind of amillennialism. Now having said all that, some of you have even perhaps heard Dr. Venema lately and you know that something like amillennialism and postmillennialism properly are not distinguished until the 20th century uh, in in the way we would think of them as distinguished now. but they actually are distinguished, throughout the history of the church in in certain sorts of ways. And I would certainly see that as true here with Augustine. How and when did Augustine come to his view on grace? 
Augustine came to his view on grace. Let me share with you a little bit from Alistair McGrath's great work on the history of the Christian doctrine of justification. And McGrath says that prior to 396, now we've given some dates for him, Augustine appears to have seen the spiritual life as an ascent to perfection. What happens in 396 is his his friend uh, in Milan, his friend Simplicianus, asks him a bunch of questions, and he particularly asks him from Romans 9, why did God hate Esau? And Augustine had been sort of avoiding that question. Uh, He knew Romans 9 was there, and he figured he had to finally come to reckon with it. And as he looked at Romans 9, 10 to 21, this is what he came to as he really looked at it. He came to these positions that man's election is to be understood to be based upon God's eternal decree of predestination. Augustine earlier had said that there was kind of a temporal election that man had of God. And, and I used to hear this as a kid. We elect God. We, we choose him. He looks down through the corridors of time to see who will choose him. And we choose him. And then he chooses us. And Augustine said, no, God's eternal election precedes any kind of temporal election or or faith on the part of man. God's election is fundamental. And secondly, man's response of faith to God's offer of grace is now understood to be in itself a gift of God. So man's response is seen to be a gift. Augustine abandons his earlier teaching that man's response to God depends solely upon the unaided free will. This is a huge, huge thing, and it's going to lead him, of course, to do a number of things. He's going to develop what's called a fourfold view of the state of man, Uh, man in the garden and his innocency. He's able to sin and able not to sin. I'll spare our listeners the 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 Latin. Latin. (laughs) Fallen man, not regenerated, is, is not able not to sin. Now, you see, that's a very serious view of the fall and of the effect of the fall, over against Pelagius. You know, Adam was a bad example. Augustine says, no, Adam landed us in the soup we're in. We're born sinners, and we have a sin nature, and we sin because we have a sin nature. We're sinners by by imputation and by infusion and by choice. We're sinners in every sense of the word, and we need the grace of God. And uh, so he said, uh, redeemed man is, again, able to sin and able not to sin, uh, those renewed after the image of Christ. And then man in paradise, man ultimately in the new heavens and new earth will be not able to sin. So the payoff here is really a great gift of learning that God predestines and that his gift that the faith we exercise in him is itself a gift. So Augustine is moving us to a much more, once again, God-centered and God-focused view. Next time, Dr. Strange walks us through two ecumenical councils that met in the era of the early church, the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. 
For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform's Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.